Hello. Is it me you're looking for? I'm certain it isn't. But as you're here, here's a podcast I'm sure you'll enjoy. We're in a fantastic flat. I'm very envious. I'm at, a, I'm at a, of an age where I get property envy. Uh, and I'm going to speak to somebody about hopefully much more than Doctor Who, but three appearances therein. So I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. OK, well, hello, Toby. Uh, my name is... Well, my stage name is Tom Kelly. And um, I appeared in three different stories, all with Tom Baker. And I think this was probably in about 1978, 79. Well, yes, you sort right? of, yeah, you spanned the Louise Jameson era. That's right. That was quite entertaining because I remember I was um, on the studio floor because Louise Jameson was all in, you remember, was all in these leather sort of, you know, garb and we were all uh, painting bright, sort of dark. And not, was it an uh, orangey brown? which made you stand out rather in the BBC canteen. <laughs> and I remember I was standing in, on, the, on the studio floor and they were playing in a bit of telecine, which was always a palaver. You know, this was a bit of pre-recorded film, which they would then drop into the, the TV. And you could always tell, you know, because the quality of the picture changed enormously yeah. Yeah, between the video and the little bit of film. But I think it was quite tricky for them to get it all to sort of run... The, uh, come up at the right moment and we've been standing around on the, on the studio for, for what seemed ever and um, Louise Jameson was standing not so far away you see, but I had no idea who she was and so just to pass the time I went and over to her and I said so you do many of these? <laughs> I said and she looked rather shocked and then said oh but I'm, I'm the new Doctor Who girl and I said, oh, my God, you know, if I'd known that, I don't think I would have actually said anything to you. And I would have been a bit intimidated by that. But it was great that I didn't know, because, in fact, we then ended up as very good friends. And um, because I did another two with her, and then I um, got her onto a radio programme I was doing for Capital Radio, and had her as a guest on that. And uh, then I went down to Brighton, and I saw her doing a show down there. So we got to be really good friends over, uh, over those... Uh, that period, that period of time, between the 1970s and mid-80s, I suppose. Um, but it was all very new to me. I was only about 24 when I did my first Doctor Who, and I'd never done any telly before. And I remember my agent actually sent me to watch a recording. I went and watched a recording of The Duchess of Duke Street. Oh. Do you remember that? I do, yes. And I just sort of stood... And, watched how television was made because I had no idea how it happened and then uh, we, I was called I, I was sent the script uh, of guard number two <laughs> <laughs> and I had my two lines or three lines or whatever it was and I was um, then told to, to turn up for the, uh, the read through and I turned up at the what was called then the BBC Hilton oh, the, the, the yeah. Acton Hilton the yeah. Acton Hilton and it was a uh, sort of a close approximation to a multi-storey car park, really, because it was seven floors of very large rehearsal rooms. So I think it was about three rehearsal rooms on each floor. And right on the top floor, about the seventh floor or so, was a canteen. And you would stand in a queue 
for, for your lunch or a cup of tea and you'd have Morecambe and Wise standing behind you and the two Ronnies standing in front and it was extraordinary that you were mixing. James Boland was there with uh, When the Boat Comes In and all, the, all these TV programmes all being made around you and that was, just being in the canteen was rather oh, exciting yeah, yeah. in those days. Anyway, I went to the read-through of the first one, somewhat nervous because, you know, I hadn't experienced it before and um, there were hundreds of people along this long table, you know, with the director and producer and everybody. And, of course, um, large as life was Tom Baker there. And I don't know if you've heard these stories before, but uh, the read-through would begin and Tom would say his first couple of lines and he'd go, this is <laughs> This is absolute <laughs> And, you know, and I, you know, being 24, was shocked, you know, and I was thinking, oh! <gasps> You know, what's going to happen now, you know, because I was taking it all terribly seriously. And Tom Baker would then strike out whole lines and sections and then replace them with some very witty dialogue. And it became transparent that what was making the programme so good were his amendments, his alterations, that the, the sparkle that was coming wasn't coming from the writers, it was coming from Tom Baker himself. And I was desperately impressed that, you know, he was, this was a man who was taking some really pedestrian sort of script and, and bringing it alive, you know, and, and just adding that sort of, you know, the glitter the to Doctor Who. Yeah, the humour, the humour was all him, was all him. And I always thought he should have got a credit at the end. <laughs> additional material. <laughs> additional, additional dialogue, Tom Baker. Yeah. Sparkle. Yeah, the sparkle <laughs> came from him. Um, and, but then I suppose the, there was also the penalty that, that Tom never stopped he was always in full flow. He was always um, mid-story. You know, there were just endless actors' anecdotes. I mean, they were hilarious, and he told them brilliantly. But it did make the rehearsal process very slow mm -hmm. because everything, everything stopped while Tom would relate this long story, you know, and have everybody in fears, you know. But as I say, it did, it did slow the whole process down a bit. But he, he coped magnificently. In, in terms of performing, you never, you, you were never not aware of Tom in the room. You know, you could never come into the rehearsal and think, oh, is, is Tom Baker here? Because <laughs> <laughs> he just flooded the room with this enormous personality, which was, which was uh, great fun to work with. Great fun to work with. And you were killed rather memorably. Yes. Just, just halfway right. through a wall. <laughs> that's right. With Louise Jameson, that's right. She, she sort of stuck a, uh, a Jane is thrown between my shoulder blades, which caused me to be paralysed yeah. in a such a position as to block the exit <laughs> for everybody else. Yeah. I, I seem to remember. Yeah, and yeah, that was that was peculiar, wasn't it? Um, anyway, yeah, and then they all said to me, everybody said to me, "Oh, we'll have you back, Tom. We'll we'll get you in another one." And you, at that time, you're you're very cynical. You go, oh, "Yeah, yeah, I bet." You know, and then sure enough, there I was. Um, you know, a couple of months later, with a different hat on, on a different planet, you know, playing a different blob, different guard. A different guard. A different yeah. guard number This two. is the, the Sunmakers on film, and you're on film I'm this on, time. I am on film, and we recorded that um, underneath Bell Size Park tube station, if, if you want to know. It's meant to be Pluto. We were yeah. meant to be on Pluto. <laughs> the budget was stretched that <laughs> Didn't far. Didn't quite go that far. And uh, it was extraordinary because it was quite a... Um, uh, an eye-opener, really, because you go beneath 
on, on a, in a lift, you go beneath the actual bell-sized part tube station, and underneath there are these extraordinary tunnels that were all dug um, during the Second World War, um, and they had um, uh, bunk beds for as far as you can see, and they would accommodate whole squadrons of, of military that would then be shipped in and out via the London um, uh, railway stations. And so it was an extraordinary way of moving troops around Britain in the middle of a war uh, in a very covert way that nobody would see all these guys and they would sleep in these long tunnels underground. And so one felt slightly privileged by seeing it all, you know, but it made the most fantastic set. Mm. Fantastic set, because it was so creepy, so creepy, that you had miles and miles and miles of these bunk beds. And uh, and they they lit it wonderfully. <laughs> and so it did, you know, it did look extraordinary. And so that was... That was that one, and then I was a Varden. You were a Varden. Uh, so you'd ushered I, Louise in in the face of evil, and you saw her right. in the invasion of China. I did, yeah. that's right. And uh, a very disappointing Varden, I think, was the line Tom Baker came up with, wasn't it? <laughs> that we'd been invisible for the first couple of well, you, Yes, you'd been sort of shimmering tinfoil. That's right. <laughs> and then the big reveal is your yes. sort of men in stock we, military we, uniform. We were in stock military uniform. And then I think Tom Baker said, has the line, or rather disappointing, aren't yeah. they? And, yeah. um, and one felt very much that was the case, really, because, <laughs> you know, you try to make a big entrance, but, you know, you didn't have much to back you up. Um, and then we filmed all of that um, at, a, at a, um, a recently vacated hospital. It was a big old institution down in Guildford somewhere, or Surrey, somewhere like that. And it, again, made a most fantastic set because it was a crumbling Victorian asylum you know, that had, the NHS had only recently vacated and it was now sort of, again, these, um, these wards and corridors and things and that, again, made, made the most fantastic atmosphere, you know, to, to film it. It was a bit of a last-minute one, though, by all accounts, Invasion of Time, rather sort of... What, no, no, nobody let me in on that. <laughs> I, I, just, I remember it was Pennant Roberts... Was that was the director? Ah, Pen no, Pennant Roberts did the Sunmakers. Oh, the did Invasion the of Time was Gerald Blake. Oh, it was Gerald Blake. Yes, thank you very much for that. Yes, it was Gerald Blake. Pennant Roberts, I loved because he got me in to do Blake Seven, and <laughs> I could just remember that uh, I had to die in a um, in an air conditioning sort of tube. I was mm -hmm. crawling along an air conditioning or a, a, a ventilation shaft, like you do in these sort of things. Yeah. At the very moment when the spaceship was attacked, and <laughs> what they had was a... Um, they wanted this sort of explosion to happen, you know, quite close to me, and the, where the, the spaceship hull was punctured and all the, you know, uh, all the oxygen would escape. <laughs> and throughout rehearsals, of course, uh, Pennant Roberts... Uh, would would say would say bang. He would say bang. You know when the when the when the explosion happened, and I'd and I'd react. And then we went to Ealing and actually recorded it. And this thing went off in my ear like a nuclear explosion. <laughs> and believe me, there was no acting involved at all at that point. I was going, what the hell was that? You know this huge explosion. And suddenly I was covered in BBC foam. Um, which, which was the way to go, I suppose. And, and if, if you hadn't been, it might have been called Blake's Eight because it's the second episode yes, of Blake Seven. Yes, absolutely. The, I think one of the lines at the end of the second episode is, "And now there are only seven of us." 
So I think I can take the title of Blake's Eight. You were the Blake's Eight. But what made, what made me laugh was that uh, just uh, was Pennant Roberts. He had this lovely Welsh accent. And uh, when he was directing me, and he said, uh, Now, Tom, I want you to look, look into the camera now and think, Oh no, I've had my chips. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I've had my chips. And I thought, Do you know, Pennant, I think it's the last thing I would be thinking <laughs> if I was about to meet my end. <laughs> oh no, I've had my chips. It's very pre watershed last thought, <laughs> isn't, it? isn't it? It's very pre watershed. <laughs> Well, he, yes, he must have liked you because he directed Face of Evil, Sunmakers, and Your Blake Seven. There you so. are. I kept on coming back. Yeah. I kept on coming back. And he died only very recently. He did. Yeah, 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 very, yeah, sad, yeah. very sad. But he was, he was a lovely bloke. You know, they, they, were, they, were, they were great fun to work on. Um, and, yeah, and as you know, I mean, that, that, then, it, then it sort of moved on. It got more interesting for me because, you know, it was great to say two or three lines and good to get a sort of feeling for the studio and stuff. But then Sapphire and Steel came which in which much more, much more. If the list, if the listeners are very blinkered Doctor Who types, I'm sure they're not because <laughs> no. because uh, even Doctor Who types, even the the the, the very blinkered still watch related stuff like Blake Seven and Sapphire and Steel. But you are in the in the railway station yes. story of Sapphire and Steel. You're the you're the sort of main uh, sort of g- uh, guest protagonist. You start off as a sort of spooky presence and end up being yes. a, 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 a you know a major role in it. And I have to say, Tom, I think it's an absolutely terrific performance too. Oh, that's very kind of you, thank you very much. Um, um, PJ Hammond was the writer on it and he um, admitted to me right at the very start that he didn't really know who the character was of Sam Pierce. At that point he didn't even have a name. Oh, soldier. Yeah, yeah, he was just called a soldier and um, I, was, I was just a spooky ghost and uh, we didn't have, we had the first episode uh, to read through but we didn't know what the others were going to be and PJ Hammond would write himself into a corner, so he wouldn't. So we'd have to really think hard about how he would get himself into out of the scrape, into the next episode, you know. And um, what had happened was that the he was he began to write for what I was doing, and I was acting for what he was writing. So it got a, a very nice you know combination. And then ATV, who were making the program, said. After we'd recorded about four or five of them, they suddenly decided that they would run the programme without a commercial break in the middle, which meant that all the programmes that we'd made previously were now short by a couple of minutes. And so PJ Hammond had to fill in the couple of minutes with dialogue or something that didn't actually upset the plot line. So that's tricky. I think that's quite tricky to do that, to to insert something that doesn't uh, mess it all up. And wonderfully for me, he began writing these short speeches for me because I could just reminisce about my life before the war, which of course was perfect for, 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 for the story because it didn't mess the story up, it just reinforced who the characters were. Um, but Joanna Lumley was lovely to work with. She was an absolute delight to work with. Yeah. She was so self-deprecating, which was made her hilarious. And she would get worried if she had more than five or six lines to say at one time, you know. Because she, she, would, she would go, oh, people are going to get bored. They get bored, Tom. They'll get bored. I, and then she'd say, oh, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll cross my legs. <laughs> <laughs> she would deliberately, in the middle of a speech, just simply cro- cross her legs in a different way, just as sort of, to, you know, to make her to make her more interesting. But she was such fun to work with. She was so bright and she was so quick witted, 
Um, she is the person that you see on TV. Mm-hmm. She is the person. You know, really entertaining and extraordinarily bright. She would polish off the telegraph crossword in minutes. You know, she had a classical, has a classical education. And so she would ask you impossible questions in rehearsal, say, oh, who was Zeus's daughter? <laughs> I have no idea, Joe. No idea. You know, and, but she knew all that mytholo- uh, mythological stuff, all the classics, you know, yeah. all that stuff. She, she knew it all backwards. So she was great for it. But, but it strikes, because I wonder what strikes me about that sapphire still, and I went mm. into it when I first saw it years and years ago, knowing you from Doctor Who playing guards and Varden, yes. is that I thought, oh, well, yeah, he's, he play, he's playing a small part of Soldier, and he's a ghost, and then, yeah. and then which, so I'm guessing you were sort of almost hired to do the sort of stuff you had been doing up to That's that right. point. But That's they right. just went, let's give this guy more. Yeah. Absolutely, and it grew and grew. Um, and so each week I had more, to, <laughs> had more to say, and the character became more three-dimensional, you know, rather than just starting off as a spook. Um, you know, it, it, suddenly the... And it helped the storyline. I think uh, the, the whole thing about Sam Pierce was his resentment that he'd been killed at the moments before the ceasefire had been announced. Mm. And you thought, actually, there must have been blokes like that who oh, must have... Yeah. Must have you know, caught it right at the last minute, you know. And the irony, the tragedy of that, that, you know, moments later the, the ceasefire would have come into operation. And by giving him, uh, by Peter Hammond writing you know, more material for me, you made that more real, you know, rather than having to imply it somehow. You could make it much more real. So it made the character more real. I think, I think of the stories that Sapphire and still had... I think it was that story that stood out. Mm, no, it's the best, the, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it yeah, was a great, great story. Great. Really good story that, 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 that was built around, I don't know, resentment and... Uh, I don't know. It was well, and it's, it's, it's spooky as well. And there's a lovely very performance spooky. from an actor called Gerald James as yeah, a ghost hunter. fantastic. A very sweet performance. Yeah, he was a wonderful guy. He told me he, he was, had a ready supply of, of good gags. <laughs> He'd, he'd entertain you on set, you know, the one we were waiting, as you would always be hanging around on set waiting for something to happen. And then Joel James would go into a, a sort of stand-up routine. <laughs> just, and just, again, not a Welshman, not yeah. a lovely Welshman. And he'd just have you on the floor, uh, falling about with all these gags, sort of stand-up stuff. So what was what had got you to this point, Tom? What was what was your what was your background, and was it always going to be acting? What what, what led was, you there? Yeah, I I started off um, uh, when I when I finished school. Um, I uh, at eighteen, I said to my dad, "Can I go to drama school?" And he said, uh, "Well, go for university and for drama school, and we'll see which one comes out. You know, which one you get." And um, I'd gone up for a number of different universities, but um, my dad wasn't very impressed with the ones that had selected me, and so thought at the end, because Lambda had admitted me and taken me on, thought, well, I might as well go for Lambda, because he didn't think the other uni- the universities were much cop, really. Okay. So and I was very glad of that, because he, he had to support me through, throughout you know, doing it. And then, um, so I was at Lambda from 73 to 76. Oh, my God. Long time ago, and um, and then I worked pretty. I, I was very quite lucky because I, I I got a good agent, Jeremy Conway, mm. um, who was a very good agent, and I didn't appreciate then that the power of good agent because a good agent will have the leads, will have the stars, right? And so what happens is that they 
the, the, the star will be in a TV show, but of course then the agent can say, well, if you have the star, then these other parts will be played by actors from my stable, mm. as it were. And so I didn't quite know how it was happening in those days when I was only 24, 25, but I would get scripts that just appeared in front of me without an audition. They would just turn oh. up, yeah, to play guard number two, to play you know, these sort of walk-on parts. And it was all very straightforward, you know, you just suddenly, you just turn up and the part was yours. And uh, it had all been done, you know, yeah, they behind, call it, behind they call, closed doors. They call it a package deal now, yes, I think. Yes, yes. And you thought, well, good for Jeremy, and that was exactly the way to do it. You know, if you want the star, then you can only ask for so much money, but then you can start filling in all the other gaps with the rest of the people that you represent. And so, yeah, that, that worked out, you know, very well for me for a while, and then... I suppose as I got a little bit older, I began to realise I wasn't getting the young, pretty roles anymore. And I was realising that there were younger and prettier people <laughs> coming out of driver school that were taking those roles. And I was moving into a different sort of, um, I don't know, range of parts. Young dads I was now sort of being cast for. And they were harder, and, and I realised then that writers don't write so much for those sorts of um, characters. Mm -hmm. I think you writers tend to like to write for adolescents and grandfathers, you know? Mm -hmm. There's that, that generational gap, you know? And I think you get a lot of um, theatre which has this big age range between the young lad and his grandfather. Those turn up frequently, but you don't get so much for... Middle-aged, middle-aged dads in 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 between. I don't think. I don't know. Maybe it's just my impression. So the the parts were were less were less frequent, and I was getting more interested in um, perhaps other things. Um, and I got more interested in journalism. And I was working. I started off um, working for Capital Radio, thinking I wouldn't do very much of it, and the job took over really and I was running around London making programmes and um, doing interviews and making all sorts of ambitious uh, features, items, documentaries, things like that. Well, what sort of subjects were you? Anything I wanted really, um, anything that uh, was relevant for the London audience. So I would do the future of Battersea Power Station, I would do, I don't know, lead in petrol, how it's affecting children's development. I mean, they were desperately um, ambitious programmes. Um, some of them worked and some of them didn't. <laughs> a lot of them didn't, really. And I realised then that actually making a programme that was worthy wasn't necessarily something that people wanted to listen to. You know, there was a big... There's a gap there. Um, you know, what do people want to listen to is can be quite different to what they should be hearing about. You know, mm -hmm. and um, and then I did that for quite a few years, and then I um, teamed up with a psychologist, a very interesting woman called Philippa Davis, who'd written a number of self-help books, and had a lot of interest out of that. And she was basically going to companies and businesses and and teaching people drama school tricks, really. And I thought, well, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can do that. And it was funny because Pippa had more of an academic background and I'd had a more practical background. I'd done the theatre, I'd done the television, I'd done the radio journalism. So I'd actually done the things that she was talking about. So we would go into companies and businesses and get these guys who had to pitch, who had to speak, who had to give presentations and talks. And, you know, I could bring to bear the 
journalistic stuff I'd done, the theatrical training that I'd had, and then Pippa would insert some of the psychology behind it. And we worked together for about seven or eight years and built up a real, uh, a nice sort of arsenal of clients um, that I've still got, majority of. And, uh, and then, unfortunately, Pippa's uh, husband got very, very ill, and so they decided that they would go back to Wales, where they were both from, and he would live this sort of uh, uh, convalesce in, in the hills of Wales, mm-hmm. and left me, really, with the whole of the business, and, which was fantastic, as far as I was concerned. And so I've done that ever since. And uh, I've ended up now um, working for uh, this huge media agency, that have to pitch to people like Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble, and they have to stand up and tell them why they're so good, <laughs> which is a major cultural stumbling block. <laughs> yes, yeah. of course. To standing up and saying, I'm so bloody brilliant, and this is why you should employ me, is one of the things that British have a lot of problems with. Mm-hmm. And so it has to be some sort of performance. You know, you have to try and get around it in such a way that people feel comfortable saying those sorts of things or the equivalent and using techniques that would actually um, allow them to express their expertise so you get them to tell stories case histories and things what what their successes yeah and that can act very nice as a form of persuasion so that's what I do now that's what I do now but interestingly I just did a couple of courses, and I'll finish now. I did a couple of workshops with Ogilvy and Mather, which you might know is a, one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world, mm-hmm. right? teaching them all this presentation skills stuff, which they loved. But one of the girls, one of the girls of the course, who to me looks about 14, you know, and she came up to me and said, oh, we're casting for a man who's got uh, diabetes in his late 60s and will soon die... And we want him in a video. And she said, I thought you'd be perfect cast. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, I'm only 61. <laughs> she said, oh, really? Oh, she said, oh, I thought you might do. Uh, you look about 70. I'm sure we could make you look 70. <laughs> so I said, OK. And so they sent me this script. And it really just, it was a, a, a piece to camera. But it was the first acting that I'd done in 20 years. Wow. And I just had to describe my symptoms and how my doctor was treating me. And then this little video gets broadcast at a, a doctor's convention. And then the doctors all talk about the treatment that's been advised and how it could be different and, uh, and the implications of the treatment. Anyway, I've done one of those. Then they asked me to do another. And I've just had a message today. Can I come and do a third one? So maybe my career Sequels. is coming back. Absolutely. Maybe guard number two <laughs> is going to make a return. So long as he's ill. As long as, as he's <laughs> very, very ill. Hasn't got much longer to go. <laughs> well, he said there's, there's an echo there. You know, I only lasted a couple of scenes, didn't well, I? Indeed. In, in you talked to who? Yeah, you, yeah, you did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now I'm, I'm just uh, as short, quickly, short-lived a speciality. This is this will go down on my uh, I don't know my, on my tombstone. You know, <laughs> never never appear for longer than forty seconds. <laughs> uh, did you? I mean, did you miss miss? The, acting or was it just quite a natural process it was it was a natural process um uh by the end i was i i I think somebody caught it rather well a friend of mine caught it very well and he said i think your disposition towards it changes as you get older and when your agent would call you in the old days and say do you want to be one of robin hood's merry men in bridlington you'd think how fantastic and you'd love it 
But, but then when you get to 45 and they say, do you want to be one of Robin Hood's merry men? You go, no, not really. Um, you know, it, it seems a lot of hard work, you know. So I think your disposition does change. Yeah. You want to do something that's meaningful for you. And that became very important to me. And I was going up for parts in plays that I wouldn't actually choose to go and see. Yeah. And then I thought, aha, uh-huh, I've lost the plot now. Yeah. I've lost the plot. So the radio and the presentation skills all meant a lot more to me because I was in control of it. I think you recognise this as well. Yeah, you're your yeah. own boss, you're making yeah. your own choices, and you're, you're in charge of it all. You're not just waiting for the, for the agent to call, you know, yeah. which was so... You're entirely beholden to others, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely, really? absolutely. And so you could, you know, you could, you could create your own career. And, and, that, and it meant much more to me. You were talking about things that, that meant something to you, that has some meaning. Yeah. Did you have any... I mean, because you worked with some good directors like Herbert mm. Wise on Julius Caesar and yes. Rodney Bennett used you a few times. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, Herbert Wise, that was another lucky story because he'd been... Uh, he'd done I, Claudius. Mm. And then Cedric Messina, oh my God, what an extraordinary man he was, um, decided that the BBC would record all of Shakespeare's plays. And I got, again, a walk-on part in Julius Caesar. And I had a couple of lines, and we turned up for the rehearsal, for the read-through, and the, <laughs> the read-through was going, and then uh, somebody stopped the read-through. Um, I think it was um, oh, Keith Michelle. Yes. Who died It was also recently. just last week as we recorded right. this. Yeah. Keith Michelle played Mark Antony, and he stopped the rehearsal and said, oh, unfortunately, the guy that was going to play Antony's servant who had a nice little speech, is now not able to do the, fulfil the part. And so we got to the end of the read-through, and one of the actors sitting next to me nudged me and said, go and ask, go and ask if you can play that part. So I <laughs> went up, I did, and I walked up and I said, can I play it? Can I play Anthony's servant? And uh, there was a bit of, you know, umming and erring, and within half an hour I'd been given the part. And again, a bit like Sam Pierce in Sapphire and Steel. Suddenly, I had myself a nice little, nice little role in there. Nicer, yeah. And I came on and played that part, and uh, it was a, a billion times more interesting than just having a, the walk-on part that I that I'd got. That you originally got. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, but and Herbert Wise was fantastic to work with. He was he was great fun. Um, he uh, used to take the out of the, uh, the, the scenery that the BBC created because <laughs> it was all wooden and it was meant to be marble. Everything was meant to be marble and Roman and, of course, it echoed and thumped whenever you touched it. So whenever you felt... Well, I had to come on and fall to the floor, you see. So he said, could, you, could I fall to the floor quietly? I see. <laughs> so, so it didn't, didn't go... Thunk. It didn't yeah. thunk when you hit the marble floor, which was obviously, you know, a bit of old plywood. So that was quite tricky, falling to the floor quietly and making it look as if it was uh, it was marble. Um, well, look, uh, this has been terrific. Um, you've very, very kindly given your time. So um, uh, we ask the listeners to donate to a charity of your choice. So oh, right. Okay. Charity. Well, it is... Um, I don't know when this is going to be broadcast, but it, today is the 2nd of December. And yesterday was the 1st of December, which you will probably remember is World AIDS Day. Yes, and so I think it is appropriate for an HIV charity. It could be um, Gay Men Fighting AIDS, GMFA, uh, that you could choose, or any of those, really, because it is still killing people 
in huge quantities in the underdeveloped parts of the world where they don't have access to antivirals, retroviral, whatever they're called, you no. know. Um, and these pills are available now, you know, and people shouldn't be dying of it no, anymore. It and if only they would uh, give these pills, then people would then become, uh, you know, uh, undetectable and wouldn't be able to pass on the disease and you could stop it. So, you know, there's an easy, I don't know, <laughs> to me, solution staring us in the face that, you know, you could, you could stop this... You could stop this disease in its, track, in its tracks if people just concentrated on it. So, mm. um, that's the one I would recommend Brilliant. that people do. And okay. this was uh, this podcast was nominally convened <laughs> to talk about Doctor Who, and nominally convened to to celebrate its fiftieth anniversary. We're yes. now in its fifty second oh, year. So, Tom, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans? Out oh, there? Uh, um, oh, oh, good lord! What is my message? Um, I think Terry Nation, who created the whole thing in the first place should be, I don't know, beatified or something. Because th- this concept, the idea of the TARDIS, the idea of the time traveller, was such a, a robust idea, don't you think? It was such a brilliant moment, creative moment, that it can have lasted for 52 years or whatever and have been, I don't know, adapted and changed and altered, yet stood up throughout the whole of this process, all the different doctors that have played it. Um, it is, you know, such credit to him. I remember as a, as a ten-year-old watching the first episode and just being bowled over by it. And I think ten-year-olds are still being bowled over by it. So keep watching. I think. Yes, well, what I must do is because um, uh, everyone will now be shouting at their uh, at their radios uh, <coughs> is because Terry Nation wrote the second Doctor. Oh, did he? And he created Blake Seven, oh. and he's the answer in Trivial Pursuit <laughs> to Who Created Doctor Who. Oh. But Trivial Pursuit has perpetuated a myth. Oh, so. Right. I was just going to let you know, listeners, that I know that, so don't blame me. Um, uh, Sidney Newman, who was the head of drama at the BBC, created Doctor Who. But uh, it's all right for you to make the mistake. I I just get it in the neck. I always thought it was Terry Nation, but Sidney Newman, I applaud Terry Nation did Blake Seven, though. And as you were nearly nearly uh, at Blake, I think that's acceptable. (laughs) Tom Kelly, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you. Great. That was good fun. I hope that was all right for you. That was fine. Absolutely fine. You got you got a lot of material. Uh, my thanks to Tom, whose charity is uh, gmfa.org.uk. Gmfa.org.uk. That's the Game and Health charity. Uh, and if you would donate to them. Uh, we would both be very grateful Uh, tune in next time for another Who's Round in the meantime my sincere thanks to Tom and to uh, Paul Ballard and Dexter O'Neill of Phantom Films who organise great Doctor Who events and who've put in touch with a number of people uh, who you'll be hearing from over the next uh, few months and I'm afraid ladies and gentlemen years Uh, and uh, if you would like to follow me on Twitter I'm at Toby Adek, at T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. But until the next time, which will be around about the same time next week, I don't know who I'm throwing out to you. Uh, We shall see. It'll be as much of a mystery to you as it is to me at present. Uh, Thanks for listening for now. Uh, Take care and goodbye. Victoria. 
monarch of Great Britain and Ireland and Empress of India. This is an official inspection of Torchwood headquarters. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Torchwood. The Victorian Age. An alien that we're investigating is missing. Well, come on then. We are going after it. We? The royal we. You may come if you like. And where is it now? Heading for Westminster, Your Majesty. Well, that could be worse. Politicians are people too, ma'am. One does wonder. It attacked my daughter! She's dying! Someone help! Neither of you are of my world, Captain Harkness. Perhaps you deserve each other. Big finish by royal appointment to Queen Victoria.